is an Odyssey original. This is KNX in Death. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Forever chemicals. They are forever. They are chemicals. And there's a pretty good chance they're coming out of your faucet. We'll go in depth. Alzheimer's patients may have some hope on the horizon with a brand new drug. Also, time may have gotten faster over time. We are going to bend your brain. Uh, we can bend it, but don't break it. No, we won't break it. We will bend oh, we'll it. We'll bend though. it. Yeah. Okay. We start, though, with uh, discussing a new uh, U.S. geological survey study that found so-called forever chemicals in drinking water across the country, including a lot in central and southern California. Anna Reed is a senior scientist with the Natural Resources Defense Council and co-authored a recent separate study on these forever chemicals in California drinking water. Water. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. So how bad is it? Uh, well, uh, forever chemicals have been called forever chemicals because they're extremely persistent chemicals. They've been made, they're man-made, they're not um, naturally occurring in our environment. Um, and we use them throughout our life um, from everything from stain-resistant carpet to nonstick pans. And the problem with them, um, and when you ask how how bad is it, is that not only do they not degrade, not disappear, um, is that they um, have been found to be harmful to human health. Um, and they have are being found um, most everywhere we look, unfortunately. And so this is just another study um, that supports um, our concern in finding um, almost half of the samples having PFAS um, in, in our water. All right. What about people that have added water filters to their the water they get out of their tap. Does that help at all? Depends on the type of filter that they're um, adding and or using. And it also depends on the type of PFAS that are in their water. So um, traditional PFAS that we used, you know, several decades ago um, were larger. Um, and um, as they became under scrutiny by scientists and regulators, the industry has switched to different types of PFAS chemicals smaller ones um, uh, that basically also still have some of the same functions that industry wants to use, but um, not surprisingly are also um, harmful to our, our health when we are exposed to them. But those smaller um, types of PFAS um, require more advanced treatment. And so it's a, it's a big problem. Um, PFAS chemicals, um, there are thousands of different varieties um, and um, it makes it really hard to stay on top of the science and on regulating them. People, of course, are exposed to all kinds of things, uh, some of which can uh, cause harm, some of which we know causes harm. So my question on, on forever chemicals in water is how much of this is theoretical and how much of this is provable by science that these chemicals have actually or are actually causing illness in people? Uh, well, uh, I can give you a few examples to, to give you some context. Um, recently, the U.S. Uh, EPA proposed to regulate um, about six of these chemicals in our drinking water. And for the two uh, main ones that we find most often in our drinking water, they found no safe level of PFAS chemicals in our water. So what that means is because they are associated with cancer and um, developmental and reproductive harm, 
in um, and in disrupting our our immune system's ability to function correctly. Um, they they haven't found a level at which we could drink these chemicals in our water without increasing our risk of those health harms. Okay. So um, we can we prove um, beyond a, 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 a that as drinking a specific amount will um, guarantee you to get these health harms? No, I think of it often like um, how you think about smoking cigarettes. If you smoked a pack of cigarettes every day for your whole life, are you guaranteed to get lung cancer? No, but you are you're increasing your risk significantly of getting lung cancer. That's right. the same here with PFAS. Very, very quickly, if you buy a bottled water, uh, you're trading one bad thing for another, right? Well, bottled water is not actually regulated um, as as well as tap water is. Um, and so, no, it's not necessarily a good solution to the problem um, for communities that know they have highly contaminated tap water and there's been um, treatment installed. Yes, bottled water is uh, probably a safer choice, but generally, um, without understanding what type of uh, water you're drinking, um, that bottled water is not necessarily a, a better choice. All right. Thank you so much. That is Anna Reed with the uh, Natural Resources Defense Council. Right now, though, many doctors say they are hopeful they can soon begin giving patients a new Alzheimer's drug that has been shown to slow down the disease. Dr. Keith Vossel is the director of the Mary Easton Center for Alzheimer's Research and Care at UCLA. Thank you, doctor, for being with us. Thank you for having me. So, of course, there's been a lot of, of over the years, false starts, uh, hope that has been dashed about treatments, drugs, uh, you name it, and, and most of them have come and gone and, and uh, uh, have left people, uh, families of those who have Alzheimer's, uh, discouraged. Is this different? Uh, yes, this is a very different uh, result with lecanemab. Uh, the, the generic name is lecanemab. The brand name is lecanemab. This is a monoclonal antibody that targets amyloid beta, which is a um, protein that builds up in the brains of patients who develop Alzheimer's disease. And it's quite effective at um, eliminating the, that amyloid buildup from the brain. And um, that elimination of the amyloid buildup from the brain correlated with a slowing of cognitive decline significantly. And uh, this was um, the first of two drugs that have now reported positive results in a phase three clinical trial for Alzheimer's disease. So we are definitely in a new era uh, in terms of our uh, ability to treat this disease. And it's, it's a new finding that we have now that we can build on. So this drug is for people who already have the symptoms of Alzheimer's. Is it also for people who are concerned they may be showing some early signs of it? It could be for kind of both populations. So uh, it, it enrolled the, the phase three study called Clarity AD, which was run by ASI and Biogen, enrolled patients who were just beginning to experience memory loss or other symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, such as difficulty coming up with names of colleagues or friends or having word finding difficulty or difficulty navigating. Uh, these are very early, early symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. And um, because these patients had access to uh, clinical trial networks within uh, their vicinity, they were, um, they were uh, able to be detected early and had the, the type of sophisticated imaging that is done, such as like PET imaging for amyloid buildup in the brain or spinal fluid exams to confirm that they had early stages of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, there are many people who may be worried about their symptoms but haven't been evaluated yet. So this is really a good time to start thinking about brain health and talking with one's doctor about 
any concerns one may have about memory. Memory concerns are really common as we get older, and it's really important to dig into that a little deeper and, and learn about whether those memory problems are just a function of aging, these kind of senior moments that people can get, or if it's something more serious. How significant clinically uh, are the results of these two drugs that you mentioned? Well, I, I do research both in, in um, basic science models as well as in humans. And whenever um, we do rigorous studies and get statistically significant results, we are very excited about these findings because we know that there's a very good likelihood that um, the result is true. And so these this uh, study with lecanemab had a very highly uh, statistically significant result uh, on their primary outcome. And that was looking at a function, uh, a measure of how people do in their independent activities of daily living, essentially. Uh, and, and what they found was that giving this medication every two weeks in an intravenous infusion for a year and a half could slow the disease course measurably such that people could have five to six more months of um, a lengthening of their ability to perform their independent activities of daily living. There are some countries, doctor, where people don't worry that much about the cost of expensive medicines. Unfortunately, this is not one of them. Uh, are these treatments, potential treatments, something that the average person will be able to take advantage of, or will these be treatments for people who have an awful lot of money? I really do hope that anyone who would be eligible for this medication would be able to afford it and have access to it. Here at UCLA Health, um, we are able to negotiate with pharmaceutical companies through a 340B program to lower costs of medications, but it is very expensive. The, um, the current cost of Lakembi is $26,000 a year, and so that's like buying a new car every year. Uh, we are very hopeful that the CMS the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services will offer coverage for anyone who is eligible. And uh, we are very anxious to see what the label will look like uh, with the presumed FDA approval, full approval of this medication later today. Um, the label will itself will uh, kind of dictate who is eligible, which physicians may prescribe it, how long we should prescribe it. And um, we expect that the CMS will actually offer coverage but they will stipulate that patients who are um, eligible and want to be on this medication need to be enrolled in a registry. And really the big bottleneck could be that the registry hasn't been set up yet and we really don't know what it's going to look like. It could be as simple as entering people's name and, and information about their age and uh, where they live into a database uh, and some, some basic cognitive test results, but it could be more extensive than that. And of course, there are some potential side effects, so it, the registry will likely need to track all of the potential side effects that occur right. in the real world. And that's very important because this medication so far has been tested in a really restricted uh, population, even though uh, the uh, diversity of the, the, the patients that were studied were, was better than most studies, it still didn't reflect the um, the types of patients that might want to be on this medication in the real world. At UCLA, we actually did have a chance to uh, have experience with this medication through the Clarity AD trial. And um, we uh, when we were screening people that were potentially eligible, we found that 70% of them actually would not 
the uh, meet the inclusion criteria, and that's probably going to translate to uh, a lot of people wanting this drug, but just aren't eligible due right. to medical problems or medications that they are on. All right. Thanks so much, uh, Dr. Keith Vossel. And later in the show, if you think time just flies by so much faster now, well, scientists have found you're sort of right. We'll explain. Right now, though, Meta's Threads officially launched as a direct competitor to Twitter. I think it went live yesterday because I, I, I must have downloaded it right after it went live at the in the stores. Uh, it is yet another social media site among many, but is it something that we really need? Joe Carrison is a digital marketing and social media expert. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Is this a matter of one too many, or is this a matter of we have finally found the one that will make people remove Twitter from the top page on their phone and move it back and put threads there instead? I think some people will uh, you know, do that initially. Uh, I think the novelty of threads has been proven by the number of downloads and the coverage that has had uh, in the last couple of days, well, yesterday and today. But um, do I think it's the one? No, I don't think this is the solution to our social media um, search. Well, and, and I wonder if we need a solution. I mean, most people don't actually use Twitter. I mean, you know, journalists do and politicians do and activists do. But, you know, the vast majority of Americans don't use Twitter. Sure. No, you're absolutely right. I think what what's going to happen is much like most things in, in the world right now, I think it's going to be a tribal thing. I think we're going to have a bunch of people who really, really like Twitter and think it's awesome and they'll they'll stay there. And you'll have a bunch of people who really, really hate Twitter. Uh, a lot of them probably not fans of Elon Musk who will, you know, nav- or will gravitate towards threads. Um, I think this is what, you know, Mastodon tried to, to, to achieve um, with this. But I think that obviously Meta has a little more uh, pull in the social media sphere. And I think they'll have that. Um, you know, they'll get to where Mastodon tried to be. So Threads is kind of built on top of Instagram, kind of an offshoot of it. So which is kind of genius because there's a built-in user base there. But I wonder, will since you can post pictures on Threads also, will that eventually cannibalize Instagram like the iPhone cannibalized the iPod when you could play music on your phone? That is a really good comparison. Um, I think that it could, uh, but I also think that people are comfortable with certain platforms, right? Like some people really like Instagram. Some people still really like Facebook. You know, I think what what you'll see and what I've seen as a marketing professional is that people, you like people are going to, going to hang where they hang and, you know, like companies and everybody else are going to jump on these things because there are potential customers there. And they're going to need to to meet them where people want to be. And that's really kind of all this boils down to uh, in that from that perspective, um, you know, at least in my my experience. But, you know, uh, a lot of people have been saying that uh, because it's Zuckerberg, that uh, Threads is going to be successful. But that's not actually true. I, I mean, he's tried to emulate a number of other things. He tried to, to rival, for example, you know, his own version of of TikTok, a couple of other examples, and they didn't succeed. Right. No, he, uh, I think one of my favorite, well, I don't call it favorite, but one of my more, one of the, one of the ones that I think was really interesting was his attempt to 
uh, kind of rival YouTube with IGTV, um, which was a, a bust. Um, you know, Instagram has become a good video platform, but you know, that particular iteration did not go well for him. And I don't think that just because his name is attached to it, it's going to be successful. Um, I think that in, in some instances that may uh, kind of have the same impact uh, that that Elon Musk's name being associated with Twitter has had. Um, it may be the opposite. Mm. You know, I wonder because uh, Zuckerberg did try some things, as you point out, that uh, trying to replace some other thing and it didn't go anywhere. But if memory serves, he was trying to replace things that most people already liked. So why would they leave the thing they like for something new? In this case, though, uh, could Zuckerberg have an in in the fact that there's so much discontent with what's happened at Twitter since Elon Musk took it over that that gravitational effect will give it some momentum and critical mass? You know, I think I think that's a good that's a very good point. I think that that's kind of what's going to end up happening. You know, I think that there are, like I said, there are people that, you know, they gravitated towards Mastodon at one point, And I mean, that kind of fell off. But it, it, there there was a there was something out there and there still is people that are unhappy with what Elon Musk has done with Twitter. You know, more recently, the uh, the limitation of the number of views you can see uh, for a, for a, a non paid user. Um, that that seems to have ruffled a lot of feathers. So I think that, you know, he may have like a little bit of a of like a base here to work off of. And I think, like you said earlier, the Instagram, like tying into Instagram was really smart because you already have a built in user base. But do I think this is going to be the world beating app that, uh, you know, that he thinks it is? Probably not. What happens if you remove Musk from the equation? Suppose he gets tired of dealing with Twitter and dumps it and somebody else takes it over, that eliminates him as a negative, doesn't it? To an extent, I think, you know, if he remains as owner, but lets his CEO uh, that he recently hired really take the reins, that may kind of quell some of this. If he's, I don't think he'll ever, I don't think he'll sell it anytime soon because he just spent a ridiculous amount of money on it. And I don't think he could get what he paid for it uh, back. But I also think that, yeah, if you if you if he had never been the guy that bought it, uh, you know, and some of these changes hadn't happened, I don't think anybody would have left Twitter. Um, I think he's sort of a polarizing figure. I think a lot of the changes that he made, I don't think they would have upset people if they weren't coming from him sometimes. Mm. Um, you know, sometimes it's that, you know, oh, you did it, then I can't stand it sort of a thing, right. you know. <laughs> All right. Uh, Joe Kerrison, thank you so much. Digital marketing and social media expert. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Felt. Uh, Charles, do you smoke a lot of pot? You smoke a lot? I don't smoke anything. So your answer would then be very little. Why? Because <laughs> <laughs> if you do, if you do smoke a lot of pot, then you might want to talk to your doctor before you have yeah. a surgery of some kind because that might be a little dangerous probably better just not to have the surgery, period. Right. <laughs> Some people would opt for the pot over the surgery. Yes. Uh, we have uh, Dr. Uh, Paul Potnuru with us. He's the uh, first author of a study showing there might be some dangers involved here. He's an anesthesiologist at uh, UT Health Houston. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So if someone does smoke a lot of pot, which is not Charles, uh, we've established that, uh, what, what should they be concerned about if they're about to undergo a major surgery? Yeah, the main thing is, uh, so there's a couple of different 
different things. The main thing that we found in our study is if you look at major complications, things like heart attacks, strokes, blood clots, all the scary stuff, um, there was about a 20% higher rate in patients with heavy cannabis use compared to those that don't. And just to put that in context, that's about similar to the um, major complications you can have if you're a tobacco smoker. And, you know, tobacco smoking, generally the public perceives it as harmful, uh, but cannabis with its increasing use is not quite considered um, as uh, harmful, uh, but the data that we have from a national level, at least, shows that the risks are probably similar. Now, is this consistent with uh, smoking as, a, as well as edible or, or not? Yeah, so that, unfortunately, this particular study, we're not able to tease out, you know, which form people are uh, consuming the cannabis in. Uh, that, but that being said, that is one of the important things that you need to discuss with your doctor, whether you're about to have surgery or just generally if you're worried about heavy use, um, you need to talk about the type of cannabis, how much and how often, uh, because that can impact, for example, in anesthesia, uh, patients that smoke a lot of cannabis need more anesthetic medications to go under, and they need more pain medication after surgery. And they tend to have more nausea and vomiting after surgery. So these are important things that if someone told me, hey, I'm a heavy user of cannabis and they start to have a lot of pain and nausea after surgery, I know that, you know, this is maybe related to that and I need to be more aggressive about treating that. Is there already a protocol for doctors before they perform uh, like a major surgery like what you're talking about that they ask a patient, uh, do you smoke a lot of pot? Do you use a lot of cannabis or should that be something written into the protocols? And uh, barring that, should a patient getting ready to undergo surgery make sure their doctor knows if they do smoke a lot? Yeah. So just earlier this year, uh, um, the American Society of Regional Anesthesia, so they're kind of the American and uh, anesthesia group, they put out guidelines saying that every patient who is about to have surgery uh, should have the type, amount, and frequency of cannabis use. If there is cannabis use um, discussed with their physician, especially the anesthesiologist. And there's another set of international guidelines that came out this year. And all this is happening very quickly because, you know, there's increasing legalization and there's increasing use. So, um, even from about five, six years ago is the last time we had good data on this. The amount of uh, the number of patients who use cannabis has gone up five times since uh, about five years ago. Uh, so we're seeing just much bigger numbers of people showing up who use cannabis. And that's why these effects are becoming a little more obvious now when we didn't pick it up quite as much in the past. And that's why I was asking, uh, and, and, and I gather what you said, that the uh, study didn't address the differences between smoking and edible, but I asked that because I'm wondering if it's the ingredient in, uh, in marijuana or if there's something about smoke itself that's causing this issue. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. So there's, there's two, like you said, that's two different things. We do know there's some evidence from, you know, they call it basic science, where on a molecular level, we know that the active part of cannabis, the cannabinoids, uh, they do cause things like blood vessels to spasm, which can cause heart attacks and strokes. Uh, it can suppress your immune system, which will cause you to have more infections. So we know that stuff is just from the active ingredient of cannabis. But then depending on how you're taking it in, uh, so if you're smoking it from a joint versus a vape, 
you might be getting different respiratory irritants. So you may have different respiratory complications from those. But some of the other stuff that we looked at, like bleeding, uh, blood clots, strokes, and heart attacks, they're probably related to um, the active ingredient of cannabis as much as the other stuff that you might get from smoking versus edibles. So a really good idea then, uh, not just with uh, smoking pot, but also with any medication you take. Just make sure your doctor knows and your anesthesiologist knows before you undergo a surgery, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. the more open you are and the more, uh, you know, we've moved in medicine towards something called shared decision-making. So, you know, the patient giving the doctor information and the doctor giving information back, and it's more of a conversation than really uh, just one person doing something to another person. So All it's... Right. Um, you know, share as much health information as you can with your doctor, and that'll help them make better decisions and help you make better decisions. All right, Dr. Uh, Paul Portnuru, he's the author of a study showing some dangers that might be involved if you're undergoing major surgery and you smoke a lot of pot. And uh, this just in as a note, the FDA just did approve that Alzheimer's drug, Lakembi, that we talked about earlier. Uh, and, you know, by the way, on a different topic, how sometimes people say times were slower in the past, not as fast-paced as today. Turns out that they maybe are kind of right, sort of. Well, scientists have uh, looked into the early days of the universe, and they found that time moved more slowly compared to the way time moves now. Now, that's a bit of a brain-bender with us to help explain it. Is Alex Filipenko, astrophysicist and professor of astronomy at UC Berkeley. You may have also seen him on TV. He's also uh, been featured a lot in the History Channel show, The Universe. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Robin Charles. It's a pleasure to be here. So, you know, this uh, it's a common misconception that most people, they don't think about it that much, but if they do, they think time moves the way time moves. A second is always a second. But we have known since the days of Einstein, uh, that time is relative, so to speak. But this is this is in a different wavelength altogether. How can time move more slowly in the universe, earlier in the universe than it does now? Okay, so that's a great question. The news articles that have come out so far are somewhat misleading. If you were back there when the universe was young, just a billion years old, a second would be just like a second for us right now, okay? It's just that when we here right now look back to when the universe was only a billion years old, it looks to us like their time moves more slowly. And this is just a well-known effect of Einstein's theory of relativity. In fact, we know it works because, for example, if you allow something to zip past you very, very quickly. To you, it seems that the clocks tick more slowly. And similarly, if you're if you watch a clock in a strong gravitational field, it looks like it ticks more slowly. So the point is, is that the astronomers who have reported this study are looking back at objects called quasars way back in time. Um, when the universe was only about a billion years old, and they're moving away from us very, very quickly because the universe is expanding. And so we see their clocks ticking more slowly in a relative sense. But it's not really that time went on at a different rate back then to them, you know? So are there, though, practical applications from this knowledge uh, that in the real world have an impact or have had an impact? 
absolutely. Uh, Einstein's general theory of relativity has its greatest impact on us in the global positioning system, GPS. The point is that the satellites up there that are circling Earth are in a weaker gravitational field, and they're also moving relative toward us. And so you take those effects into account, and you figure out how differently the clocks up there are ticking. They're actually ticking a little bit faster because they're in a weaker gravitational field. And so when they send out signals to us with a timestamp, and we receive those signals and put another timestamp on it, the difference in time multiplied by the speed of light tells us the distance to each of those satellites. And knowing the distances to a bunch of satellites, well, you determine where you are on Earth. But if we didn't take into account Einstein's relativity, that is, that clocks tick at a different rate depending you know, on their relative motion and on their relative gravitational field, GPS wouldn't work. So thank Einstein and, of course, clever applied physicists and engineers who made use of his theory, but thank all of them for the workings, the proper workings of GPS. Mm -hmm. So looking way back into the past, as we peer further into space, we're looking back into the past. And the further back you look, it looks like time is moving more slowly relative to your observing it. Does that mean, as the current scientific understanding of the universe, that we are continuing to expand and that rate of expansion is increasing? Is that also effect of this, this time relativity? Um, well, only indirectly. Relativity, Einstein's relativity would be correct even if the universe's expansion were not speeding up. Indeed, our team's findings, you know, 25 years ago that it is speeding up uh, was a, a revolution. And it led to this idea of dark energy, kind of a cosmic anti-gravity, making the universe expand more quickly uh, with time. But that in itself doesn't change the fact that, you know, relativity would work even if we didn't live in an accelerating universe. It's just that with increasing time, those very, very distant objects will be moving away from us even faster. And so it'll look there like their clocks are ticking even more slowly. This so-called time dilation effect will become greater and greater because of the expanding universe. All right, uh, Alex Filipinko, our guest. And, and uh, Alex, uh, one of the weirdest things about time that we're observing right now is that we are out of it. Yeah, yeah I'm so... sorry, but if you call on me any time you want. Right, uh -huh. got it. Uh, that would be relative to where you are. Uh, well, Charles, you know, I do, you do notice sometimes that we're, when you're at work, uh, time does definitely moves more slowly than it does when you're doing something fun, like uh, sitting at a, a concert and enjoying some music somewhere. Yeah, sometimes it drags. Yes, and I think for you, you have observed time moving more slowly when you're in the room with me. I'm going to pause and let that time elapse. Go out. That's it for In-Depth. We'll be back tomorrow, relatively.